see you this morning. Um, I'm Ryan, and uh, I'll be your preacher this morning. And uh, so it's good to it's good to be here. Uh, it's good to be in this time and in this place. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to John 4, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is the, the fourth book uh, and also the fourth gospel in the New Testament. As Jeff said, um, we are in the middle of a sermon series called A Pathway of Discipleship. A Pathway of Discipleship. And uh, one of the reasons why we intentionally chose to spend a few weeks uh, with this particular topic is because we live in a day and a time where often the common language uh, for those of us who follow Jesus is we say, hey, I'm a Christian, right? I'm a Christian. And so what does a Christian mean? You know, I mean, we use this term all the time. And frankly, Scripture is not terribly helpful uh, for understanding and defining what a Christian is. There are only three times in the entire New Testament where the word Christian shows up. But there are 269 times where the word disciple shows up. In fact, the word Christian, when it was originally coined, it was not coined or created by followers of Jesus. It was created by the opposition, by the enemies. It was, it was a pejorative term. And so if you were labeled a Christian, it's because they were mocking you. They were putting you down. Isn't that interesting how words change? semantics uh, change. And so, uh, anyways, but, but today, we oftentimes talk about, well, I'm a Christian. And as we look about what in, in Scripture, about what it means to be a Christian, it's not terribly helpful. And I think today, even the word Christian has changed. Uh, it continues to change. And, and Christian is, is kind of an identity piece, right? It's, it's who I am. It's, it's like, I'm an American, right? It's, it's, it's what I do. It's, it's kind of a, a passive uh, word. It's, it's I hold to these set of uh, beliefs or ideas. It's who I am. I'm a Christian. A disciple, on the other hand, has a very different meaning. A disciple has an active uh, voice to it. It's, there's nothing passive about a disciple. A disciple is one who is on a journey. Disciple literally means a learner, someone who's learning, someone who's growing, someone who's actively uh, learning and following, and it can be with anything. But in our particular context, of course, when we talk about being disciples, we are thinking about being disciples, learners, followers, active growers of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to give you just a little bit more um, language to kind of unpack this idea of uh, what a disciple is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, defined discipleship as one who adheres to Christ. I like that imagery. I think of like, I don't know, maybe the floor this morning as you're walking around, right? <laughs> a little bit of stick to it, right? It's one who adheres to Christ. I guess they had a big party. You should see out back. Isn't that great imagery? One who adheres to Christ. When you think of a, a Christian, maybe you would adhere to Christ or not, but that's how Bonhoeffer, someone who just sticks to Jesus. Uh, another theologian, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, uh, he wrote this, uh, a disciple is one who above all else desires to be like Christ. And so it's not just this, um, I, I uh, believe in these things, but I have this strong desire, this will to follow Jesus. And there's, there's something very emotive and, and emotional about being a disciple of 
Jesus Christ. And I want to give you one more um, pastor, theologian, uh, Henry Blackaby. Some of you may have studied his uh, Knowing God uh, book. So he defines disciple as one being taught by many means intentionally in a specific direction. So Blackaby says there's, there's motion, there's movement, you're going somewhere. You're not just standing there saying, I'm a Christian. But a disciple is someone who is on a journey, walking towards, there's movement, there's action. And the other word that I really like that Blackaby uses is he says it's intentional. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple, takes some intentionality. And as I think about this word intentional, I think about uh, people who go through life. Nobody just kind of goes with the flow of culture and life and all of a sudden wakes up one day and says, wow, I feel so close to Jesus, right? Because it takes intentionality. It takes practice day in and day out of walking with God, of spending time with Jesus. And of course, disciple has the same root word as discipline. And discipline, while none of us like discipline, right? I think we all agree that discipline is important, certainly in raising children. And, and discipline is good for all of us. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means saying yes to some things, saying yes to Jesus, but it means we're going to have to say no to some other things. And we're going to have to be very intentional as we're following Jesus. So today we're going to continue to kind of drill down on what this means to walk with Jesus, to grow in our discipleship, to grow in our learning, to grow in our heart, uh, to grow in every fiber of our lives, to walk closer and closer with Jesus. It's all about movement and growing closer in our relationship with Jesus. And we never arrive, right? We never fully get there until we get to our heavenly home. That's going to be a good day, right? Then we will have finally arrived. But until then, we all have a place. We all have an opportunity. We all have uh, another step that we can take on this discipleship journey. So if you ever get tempted to think that you have arrived in your discipleship journey, um, you might want to look around because you're probably dead at that point in time, right? Because as long as you're on this earth, you've got work to do. And I've got work to do. And it's good work. And so... Um, for generations, God's people, the church, have practiced um, several different spiritual disciplines to live into their discipleship with Jesus, their connection, their stickiness with Jesus. And last week we began this uh, journey together talking about the discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer. And today, uh, as Jeff said, we're going to move on to the next spiritual discipline, which is worship. All right, let us pray. God, as we embark on this journey this morning together again today, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your faithfulness, and an opportunity to open your word, to listen to what you might have to say to us. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if prayer... Very simple. Prayer is about having conversation with God. We talked about that last week. Worship is so much more complicated. 
This is not an easy topic, and we certainly can't unpack and talk about every single aspect uh, of worship in our time this morning. In fact, we probably should do an entire series on worship, and then we'll still just be scratching the surface a little bit. So just kind of here's your heads up this morning. We're just going to kind of touch on this idea of worship, because worship is such a big idea. In fact, as you look at the, the word worship uh, throughout Scripture, Biblical writers use the word worship in many, many different ways. And, and oftentimes when we think of worship, it's much like how we began our service this morning. It's with music. It's with praise, right? And if you were to go to the Psalms, you would see lots of uh, words of worship. And, the, and the, the idea would be, hey, we're singing to God. We're praising God. We're thanking God. And this is, the, this is a, an idea of what worship is. It's it's just being in God's presence and saying, God, you are amazing, you are awesome, you are wonderful, and I'm not. So I just want to thank you for being God. So that's one idea of worship. Another biblical idea of worship is kind of this idea of, of declaring intention and declaring uh, who is most important in your life. It's declaring what is most important in your life. So if you go to the book of Exodus, and you look at the story of Moses and going before Pharaoh, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that we may go out of Egypt into the wilderness and worship our God. It's this idea of serving. So worship has become synonymous uh, with the word serve. It's, it's, it's who we take care of. It's who we pay attention to. It's not just about music, but, but it's who we look to as the one as sovereign and as the one who is Lord over everything in our lives. And so it's this, it's this much bigger idea of, uh, of worship. And, and then just another idea of, of worship is this idea, again, we look throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it talks about how God's people gather together for worship. So we think to ourselves, ah, worship is an event. Right? It's what we do on Sunday morning. We gather together. Jeff read this great passage this morning from Revelation 5. It's this, this event that goes on and on and on in the heavenly realms. And, and as we were singing this morning, I was like, ah, oh, we joined with heaven this morning. And we get to sing these same words that the angels and God's people are singing around the throne. But oftentimes when we talk about worship, we think about a place and a time and event. And this is certainly a very biblical idea. In fact, throughout Old Testament times, you look at the, the, when the Jewish people would gather together. The Hebrew word is synagogue. People who are gathered together. That's the verb. The noun of synagogue is synagogue. You hear it? Synagogue. Synagogue. So people literally gathered together. They synagogued in the synagogue to worship God. And of course, what did they do in that place, in that event? They worshiped, they thanked God for all that he's doing. They sang songs, they, they read God's word, they studied God's word, and they remembered how God was faithful to them in past times. And so worship in a biblical sense is certainly what we're doing here this morning on Sunday morning. I just I want to just give you those three quick examples uh, to know and understand that the worship is big, it's huge. 
And we cannot exhaust this idea of worship this morning. And so we're just going to look at another passage, a story this morning. Uh, where uh, there's many things going on and lots of lots of words of, uh, about worship. And again, I don't want us to lose the focus. The goal of worship, the purpose of worship, is always to draw closer to God. It's to grow in our relationship with God. Like Jeff said this morning, it's, it's not about me. It's not about evaluating anything that's going on in this place. There is an audience of one whenever we worship. And it's not any of us. It is God. And, and so we, we give all of our weight, all of our honor to God and say, God, thank you for your faithfulness. How can we walk closer together? And it's a daily journey. And so that's what the goal and the purpose and the focus of worship is all about. So we're going to read a story in John 4 this morning. Um, it's a great story about a, a woman uh, who encounters uh, Jesus face to face. She encounters God, which of course is the purpose of worship, to encounter God and to walk with God in our relationship with Him. So again, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to John 4. And uh, if you've been around church a little bit, uh, this is going to be a familiar story to you. John 4, beginning with verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. An interesting thing about this story is that Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were not Jesus, they were not, they were not followers of God. But yet Jesus goes for it. It starts out in a very kind of everyday, normal example of how people connected and interacted with one another. But it, it, the, the tone and, and, and the, the, the drama of the story shifts very quickly. It begins with something very kind of benign, uh, kind of gets emotional and uh, kind of heated a little bit here. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then the, the writer of John says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So immediately there's tension. Immediately in the story, Jesus is just asking for a drink, and already there's some contention and some, some uh, heads butting here with what's going on, and the drama uh, continues into the story. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for, your, for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in, in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So it's, it's this very confusing language, and it's one of these conversations that kind of misses each other, right? You ever had one of those conversations 
where you're missing. So this woman is talking about water um, right in front of her, and Jesus is talking about living water, something so much bigger. She's talking about something very uh, temporal, something very uh, much in the here and now, and Jesus says, oh no, I've got something so much bigger. And the conversation is going back and forth, and they completely miss each other. And the drama and the suspense continues to build, and uh, we, we wonder, where is this going? Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She, she continues to be confused. She, she, she just does not understand what's going on. And, and I can about imagine uh, uh, Jesus thinking, wow, this woman just doesn't get it, right? But he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't, you know, put her down. He doesn't shame her. He pivots the conversation. Okay, I'm not getting anywhere with this woman. Time to go a new direction. And so he looks at her and he stops talking about water. And he moves on. Verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So this is the game stopper. This is the game changer, right? This is where everything gets really, really serious, and the woman knows at this point in time for sure, he's not just talking about water. This is somebody different. This is someone special. Uh, this is someone who has come to engage her, to connect with her in, in a very special way, way beyond water. And so she replies in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. In ancient times, people knew that prophets were the go-between. They were the intermediaries. They were the ones who were close to God. They were the connection between the common people and God. And prophets were those people who came and spoke, sometimes on behalf of God. And so she recognizes that this guy, he's got an inside connection to God. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. What's your connection and then she continues on, recognizing that this guy is special, but she doesn't know that she's talking face to face with God in the person of Jesus. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She goes to that place of worship she talks about worship in very specific places. We worship here, you Jews worship over there. So which is it? It's this idea of connecting with God in a place and in a time. And I think for most of us, as I said a few moments ago, that's how we connect it when we think of worshiping God. It's in a place, it's in a time, it's in a location. I think that's a wonderful way, one of the wonderful ways that we can think about how we encounter the living God. See, what we do here on Sunday morning matters. This is truly a place where we connect with God, where we draw close to God in this space and in this time. That's why it's so important for us to gather together. 
Because when you come into this place, you are, you are reminded again, your life is bigger than what you do. Your life is bigger than what you've done. Your life is more important than the, the, the possessions you have. Your life is so much grander. You've got a bigger purpose than anything that you may see throughout the rest of the week. You are a beloved child of God, each and every one of you. And we spend most of our week not hearing those words. And you need to come into this place, in this place, and in this time, and to be reminded, maybe of Holy Communion, that God loves you. You are His child. And in that moment, nothing else matters. And that's why worship is so important. Because you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, because there's a lot of junk that goes on in our lives out in the world. When we come into this place, we just kind of set it all on the shelf. We just come before God and say, thank you. And remind me for whose I am in your son, Jesus Christ. About 15 years ago, um, my brother and his family moved from uh, urban, suburban Chicago uh, to rural Tennessee. I can't imagine why anybody would want to do that. And they've been in Tennessee for a good long time, and they've raised their six children in uh, rural Tennessee, and uh, it's been really fun having conversations with them uh, about the differences between living in the state of Illinois and living, or in the Midwest and living in uh, Tennessee or living in the South. And, and my brother's kids uh, have grown up in Tennessee so much so, most of them were born in Chicago, but they think of themselves as native Tennesseans, right? And so we have these conversations, uh, some really rich and interesting conversations about some of the differences between the Midwest culturally uh, and the South culturally. And one of the conversations that we regularly come back to over and over and over uh, is the Confederate, uh, the, the war, uh, the Civil War, right? The war between the states, the war between the Union and the Confederacy, because it, it continues to define and distinguish um, different parts of the country, and certainly the South. And, and one of the conversations I've been having with my brother and his kids and their family is, is all around this idea of the role of Tennessee uh, in the Civil War. Now, you maybe know this, but when uh, a group of states got together and decided to uh, secede uh, from the Union, President Abraham Lincoln said, that's illegal. You can't do that. Shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court of the United States also looked at the southern states and said, that's illegal. You can't do that. Well, the southern states, being the southern states, said, we're going to do that. Tennessee was one of these interesting states that sat right in the middle. They did not join the Confederacy right away, um, and they had just kind of this strange relationship with the Union. They were just right in the middle, and within the state itself, uh, the, the western part of the state, which relied more on agriculture, they're like, yeah, let's go. Let's secede with the rest of the Confederate states. But in the eastern part of Tennessee, they're more mountain people, right? They didn't rely so much on slavery, and they're like, no, we're staying. And so there was literally this division within the state of Tennessee, should we stay or should we go? 
And they ultimately, of course, decided uh, as a state to secede. But now here's the interesting thing. The western, or the, the eastern part of Tennessee, and if you were to go there today, if you were to go to eastern Tennessee today, there is a county called Union County. Right? Union being in the north, Confederacy being in the south. Union County looked at the rest of Tennessee and said, that's illegal, you can't do that, and so we're going to join the rebellion against the rebellion. Think about that. All of a sudden, they are in a rebellion against the rebellion. Now, why am I telling you this story this morning? I think we forget, as Christ followers, that when God created the world, He created it good and wonderful. God created us to be in relationship with Him, to serve Him, to follow Him, to love Him, and, and to just enjoy this relationship with one another. But people rebelled. And we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. See, I think we forget that our culture, our society, is living in rebellion from God. But it's true. At every level, People in our culture, people in our society. We don't live in a Christian nation, I'm just going to say it. Maybe once upon a time this was more of a Christian nation for sure. But make no mistake about it, we live in a nation that is rebelling and running from God. They are rebelling at every level and God looks at our nation and says stop running and come back. And the role of the church is to be a rebellion against the rebellion. See, we're just like Union County in eastern Tennessee. We're a remnant, we're a small enclave living in a greater rebellion all around us. And how does this relate to worship? I think it relates to worship because on Sunday morning, most people are rebelling. They're not following God. They're not serving God. They're not worshiping God. And let's just be honest, on Sunday morning there's a lot of other things we could be doing. Many people tell me, you know, I don't go to church on Sundays. I don't go to worship because it's my one day to sleep in. You ever heard that? You ever thought that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what culture does. It's, it's a one day that we can sleep in and we can rest. I work really hard all week long. I just want to sleep in on Sunday morning, right? And that's, that's rebellion against him. Or how about this? You know, on Sunday morning, I just want to relax. I've got so much stress in my life. I just like to wake up and drink coffee, maybe go to the coffee shop, read the newspaper, just kind of chill out, read a book. I just need to rest. I need to relax. And that is the way of the culture rebelling against God. We live in a day and time where there's all sorts of travel sports, right? I mean, there's lots and lots of travel sports going on, and our families live this for, for many, many years. It's this tension of what do we do on Sunday morning? My kid finally made it to the, the championship round. Do we not go because we're supposed to go to worship, or do we go to worship? Ah, right? And, and so there's lots and lots of sports struggles, and that's the culture in which we live. And then, oh, by the way, I heard there's a football game on this afternoon, or two, or three, or nine, right? And there are some people who are getting ready for the football game already. Call that tailgating, right? 
I mean, there, I, the list could go on and on. And I don't share any of these things with you as examples to shame you or make you feel guilty. I just want to acknowledge this is our culture. This is the pull that our society is taking uh, every single person. And make no mistake about it, all these activities, other than worship on a Sunday morning, it is a rebellion against God. Because God has called us to gather together in Sunagoge and worship Him and serve Him. So just by you showing up this morning, you are rebels. You are, you're rebels. Because all the, most people in our society, in our culture, are doing something else other than worshiping Jesus. So I want you to feel good about your rebellion. So I want you to look next to the person next to you and say, you are a rebel. <laughs> yeah, you guys are rebels. You're rebelling against the rebellion. I think one of the most important things we do when we gather is we rebel against the culture and say, we're not doing that. We're not doing what everybody else is going to do. We're going to very intentionally put all that other stuff aside, and it's not that it's unimportant. It's not that it's not real. I get it, folks. I live it also. But when we worship, we're saying, I'm going to rebel against the rebellion. I'm going to worship God today. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying here is don't get too hung up on that worship gathering, right? A time is coming. Don't get so tied up in, oh, where should I worship and when should I worship and what should it look like? He says, if there's a time coming when worship is going to be defined not simply by an event, but something so much bigger. Worship is not just showing up and checking the attendance box. If you got a little card this morning and, and checked the box and thought to yourself, boom, I'm in church today. <laughs> Check. I'm good with God for the week. That ain't worship, okay? Can we just be clear on that? Jesus says it's about your heart. It's about your attitude. It's about how you live your life when you leave this place and spend the rest of your week. I came across a really quick, great uh, quote this week, a uh, uh, guy by the name of Mike Harlan wrote a book called Seven Words of Worship. He says, measure your worship not at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, or in our case 9.30, but at 8.30 on Monday morning in the cubicles where your people go 
to work. So worship happens here on Sunday morning, right? But it is, what happens here is meant to spill out into the rest of our lives and everything that we are doing. So if you're just worshiping on Sunday morning and on Monday when you go to your cubicle or whatever you're doing, if you're not still worshiping, you've missed the idea, you've missed the point behind what worship is. Worship is an overflow of giving God thanks and praise, and it ought to bleed out into uh, our everyday lives. You know, one of the uh, examples I was thinking of how this works in terms of our Sunday morning worship and how we worship God with our whole lives the rest of the week is um, I, I run on the Constitution Trail. And so on the Constitution Trail, I see these running groups. Anybody ever seen a running group before? Or maybe you've been a part of a running group. And, and the idea behind a running group is you get together with a group of people um, one day a week and you run together uh, for some particular distance, and while you're running with this group of people, they're meant there to encourage you, to remind you why you started running, to help you uh, with your running, maybe even to do some goal setting and, and to help keep you accountable. But then the other days of the week when you're not running with your running group, you still need to go running. Right? Because if you're not running uh, the rest of the week, if you're just running on the day when you're running with your running group, you're going to show up and you're not going to be able to run with the running group because you're going to be exhausted, right? And you're going to get tired. And so you need to gather together with that running group to help you, to encourage you, maybe to help you get off your duff to start getting into a running program. I don't know. But then you've got to keep running throughout the week so that when you show back up to that running group,